Ladies and gentlemen, hello again. Welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino. This is episode 531, and joining me on the show today is Robert and Dan. Hello again, gentlemen. Dan, you say something so that you both don't step on each other at the same time. How you doing, Chris? Fantastic. I appreciate both of you extending those warm wishes to me. Um, Robert, how are you doing? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah, no. I'm glad to have you guys back on the show again. Uh, Bruce Carlson, a fan of both y'all's work on the show here. That's a, that's, so, that's high praise. I really like that's it. cool. That's cool, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, he and I, he and I were chatting about doing a little bit of collabo work here this month, and uh, he mentioned that he enjoyed both y'all's work. So uh, I want to publicly acknowledge y'all and say, keep up the good work. Yeah, See? that's great to hear. I've always really respected his work. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Um, I guess here, let's fire it off with this real quickly. Um, someone wrote into the show this week, um, and we went back and forth multiple times. And I think you guys got to see a little bit of uh, the exchange. But to sort of like shorthand it, um, where we're currently at in the exchange, I kind of want to get y'all's opinion in, which is I'm at an impasse with this listener over the importance or lack thereof when it comes to polling with regards to strong support versus regular support. So like, you know how they'll conduct polls and they'll give you four responses. Support, strongly support, oppose, strongly oppose, right? Um, this person I am going back and forth with, where it seems to really be the crux of our argument and like the debate, uh, everything else aside, is um, this person puts a particular weight on the idea that strong support when you give a polling response is somehow meaningfully more relevant than regular support. Um, what do you guys think about that? I, you know, it would depend. I mean, the questions can be so easily framed to be persuasive. The people who are likely to take the time to respond to a survey are probably more likely to strongly have opinions than people who are more in the middle like there's a lot, there's a lot there, and I don't, I don't have a strong opinion about it. There, they can be a, a a little bit of a, um, they can be a little bit of a blunt instrument, but um, I mean, for they most of these surveys usually have a uh, a, a no opinion or a, a a neutral a neutral standing, and so I mean, for somebody to put themselves on one side or the other of a line is, is meaningful. A lot of, a lot of people don't like to think of themselves as extremists. So like a, a lot of times they may temper how strongly they feel about something to fall, like to not seem like they're like a, a, a crazy outlier, but I mean, making the decision to fall down on one side or the other of a line is uh, still meaningful. Yeah. Uh, for me, it, it's, the clear point of delineation is support oppose uh, that how strongly you support or oppose something is sort of really not all that relevant. Uh, the, some of the examples we were talking about is like gun control or the infrastructure bill, uh, you know, percentage of Democrats who strongly support it versus just plainly support it. And uh, you've mentioned how no opinion can be a blunt instrument. I, I was also thinking 
about how slightly support and slightly oppose are equally as blunt instruments um, in a more subtle way. The implied read of somewhat support is that I have some reservations about this thing and it is towards the center. Whereas you could somewhat support, let's say, the infrastructure bill, but be upset, for example, that it doesn't go far enough to actually address the environmental crisis. So you somewhat support the infrastructure bill. Um, I think that actually might match the opinions of listeners of the show. Like, you want the thing to pass. It's not the bee's knees. It's not the greatest thing you've ever heard of or could have conceived of when you were thinking of the infrastructure bill. But... You want it to pass. Uh, you, you know, you think on balance it would be better if the thing passes than doesn't pass. Um, so you can be further to the left and honestly respond, I somewhat support on an issue too. Uh, to, to be clear, I, I thought I was uh, stating that a polls in general were a blunt instrument where like you're when you're breaking something to a, a, a multiple choice question, like there aren't five... There aren't five opinions or five perspectives that neatly that neatly fit into the, each of these categories. So, like people, like they're uh, getting getting too semantic about how uh, about where people put themselves into each of those categories can be. Uh, um, it's it's like uh, trying to trying to analyze a, an image if you don't actually have high enough resolution. Like you can't, you can't do the, the CSI zoom in, zoom in, zoom in. If you don't actually have granular data, it's like you made people take one of five positions and people are much more nuanced. What you're making me think about now is how the slight support actually is important only in so far as it clarifies uniform absolute support. Um, so like you'll always have a question why someone somewhat opposes a bill or somewhat supports a bill, right? Um, but the reason those categories are useful is as clarifiers for the things that are like in, in Rumsfeld, rest in peace, big guy terms, uh, like the known knowns that we know that strong or strong oppose is no matter fucking what, I am never going to support the infrastructure bill because Joe Biden is trying to pass the infrastructure bill. I don't want it. I don't like it. Um, if someone somewhat opposes the infrastructure bill, that's a nuanced thing, right? Like, like that, that's clear. But so, yeah, so like, and there's any number of questions as to why. But that category is useful because we know how many people are in the hard category. Um, so to me, if you're looking at these polls, um, it's sort of like don't even worry about somewhat support because like somewhat support – one, they're saying support and they're somewhat. And two, there could be any number of reasons why they somewhat support something um, and or somewhat oppose something. And those are idiosyncratic. Yeah, but the, the and then on the other hand, the strong support might be your, your wedge issue people or your culture war people. And those are the people who, you know, you know, you're never, it's not worth it to go after those people and try to like affect their opinion in any way. Or, or ditto with like strong oppose. Yeah, like, like that. That's what I'm saying. Like the the strong categories are actually they're useful, and they're really the only ones you should focus on in the sense of like just count the rest as support because that's what they're saying. 
the strong oppose tells you how many people you're never going to get. The strong support is how many people who are basically not going to be talked off of this rock. And, you know, yeah, that that's, you know, there you go. But the partial support categories are most likely people who it's like, I would support this thing, but like with these contingencies, like I wouldn't want it to, I wouldn't want it to overreach. I wouldn't want it to take like a weird authoritarian direction. And the, the people in the somewhat opposed are probably have that. Like uh, I could, I could in theory get behind it, but I feel like it could go, it could run off in this run, like runaway direction. And so they have, they have ways that they could be brought on. Yes. Yeah. But, but then, and another way is understanding is that push cuffs to shove at this present moment, what that responded is telling you, this is which direction they'd be shoved. Biden administration, after much sturm and drong, that's fancy pants talk for much commotion and hubbub, uh, the Biden administration extended the freeze on the federal student loan payments program through January of 2022, which would make a full one-year extension now on uh, student loan payments. Pandemic relief, which suspends monthly loan payments and interest for 42 million Americans, have been set to expire at the end of September. The administration says that this is the last time it will extend the freeze. This was not the time for the bare minimum. This was the time for like coming in with sweeping reforms like New Deal type stuff. You know, actually, like you said, you know, deal with the court system, pass actual legislation, actually be aggressive. And, you know, in my opinion, they can sit, continue to show up and do the bare minimum. I mean, just anecdotally, the people I know with student loans, they just go, well, if I if I can't afford them, I can't afford them. What's going to happen is going to happen, you know, and that's a lot of people right now. I, I think part of this, though. It to to play, I guess, the Biden's advocate here a little bit uh, it, it is that. Oh, 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 come on. Give me a break. Cut me some slack here. He does have the extant reality of nine Supreme Court justices who are not stacked favorably against him right now. Um, and uh, he needs Clarence Thomas to not be on that court. And even if that happened he would still then need to get that judge onto the court, which may prove to be no easy feat given the way Kristen Cinema has decided that she absolutely adores being the center of attention. Um, we could see some Cinema and Mansion heroics here to submarine uh, this uh, Supreme Court nomination. Uh, maybe, maybe we could balance things out with having eight Supreme Court justices. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, it, yeah. But you, know, but you know, but but don't forget that they painted themselves in this corner, and now they're up against time. And gee, guys, there's nothing we can do because we didn't do anything to lay the groundwork for this a year ago. Or, or the logjam. Uh, of Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin combined with like as um, I don't know venal of an actor or as uh, cynical of an actor as um, Kavanaugh just in that like uh, in terms of pressing like um, pressing like real business interest uh, doesn't leave me very hopeful a real problem for the administration going forward here is going to be that they need to come up with policies and executive actions that can withstand a conservative court challenge 
And this is a conservative court challenge that will be playing very, very fast and loose with what originalism is. So essentially what you need is a conservative court challenge where you can hope that Roberts can maybe rope Gorsuch and bring them over to create a concurring side with the liberal minority. Well, yeah, and my my big concern with all this stuff is as as all the powerful parties in America, and you're seeing it around the world more, as they continue to show up and do slightly less than the bare minimum, people are growing more and more frustrated and authoritarianism slowly gains more ground. You know, where does this lead in 10 years, 20 years, if we just continue to have this, you know, less than the bare minimum, you know, to, to have I think that's particularly true when it comes to the election reform bill um, and, and even the one six commission. I mean, to, to see people, we are seven months out from that. It, like a thing that I just, I mean, if you had asked me when I was 18 or 19, like, will we ever see like lunatics storming the Capitol in mass and stuff like that? Really? It's just, it's a thing you see in movies and stuff and you'd see it in nineties movies and that sort of thing. But like, it'd always be like, kind of like far fetched cause something's really going wrong in the movie. You know, like everyone's protesting on the Capitol. Oh, we're running into the Capitol building. I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. And we're now seven months out from that. And there's a large cadre of people largely on the right who are like, Oh, I can't believe we're still talking about this. Um, and if the Democrats also mirror that fatigue um, and don't take this seriously, don't take the election reform bill seriously, I agree with you. Ten years from now, the Republicans are going to get back in office and they are going to make between now and then, and they're going to take efforts to make sure that the Democrats never get back in office again. And th that's going to be a tough fucking moment. Well, and that doesn't exactly pair well with the court deciding that they're going to bow out of the gerrymandering issues with, you know, con congressional districts. Like all this stuff doesn't fit well in a good, in, in a nice way. Have, have, uh, have, has this break on the, the student loan repayment and the interest, has it been subsidized? Like, uh, are, uh, as, is the government making, uh, the lender whole? Well, these are these are federal oh, oh, these are federal loans, so the government is the lender. Oh, true. Yeah. So I I, I mean I, I guess the I mean, the answer is yes. Sure. Is that <laughs> they print they well, print the money? I'm sure Betsy DeVos is. I'm sure Betsy DeVos is getting a check out of all this somehow. Is this a break for uh, these COVID payments, like leading to a, a massive hemorrhage of cash? Because otherwise. Like what? Uh, what would be the harm of continuing it, <laughs> or continuing it for broader parts of the population? Like, uh, like what? What the actual costs are? Like to 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 make this not just a bare minimum and actually something of a win. <laughs> I, I have like, a really really cynical like answer that that popped into my head. That that's why I was making all these weird faces. The answer is. You could fight inflation by removing disposable cash income from people so that they only have enough money to make their rent and thusly cannot go out and party it up by buying things like Clorox bleach and other grocery items. Well, and if you let people skip out on their student loans for long enough, they might realize that we don't actually need to impoverish people who want an education. Los Angeles. We were talking about sticks and carrots in the last episode. Los Angeles, a place where 
Carrots are at least a popular food item. I don't know about sticks. Maybe it'll become a craze soon enough. Los Angeles is considering requiring vaccines as proof at restaurants, gyms, and indoor sporting events. The mandate would require eligible individuals to demonstrate that they've received at least one vaccination dose to visit indoor places such as restaurants, bars, retail stores, gyms, spas, movie theaters, stadiums, and concert venues. If passed, the measure would be the widest-ranging vaccination verification effort in the city to date. And I will put this on at the end of my little blurb here. Another thing that would be cruising its way up to the Supreme Court, absolutely. Yeah, unless they want to really change precedent, though, there is so much stuff cited in Supreme Court precedent on public health stuff that, and and businesses want to get back to normal. I think that I think that what's going to wind up happening, because the the federal government doesn't really have the balls to actually do this, the state and local governments don't. Um, that your gym doesn't really have the power to. I think it's going to come down to big companies saying, if you want a job, you're going to have to go get vaccinated. And that'll stand up at the court because the Republicans have spent 20 years, you know, saying corporations can do whatever they want. And so I don't think, I think that'll pass muster at the court. So God help us. We need Amazon to say. Will employment really uh, coming back around on, uh, on conservatives and uh, labor? Yeah, it's going to be really hard for them to make a case against this. And I think, I mean, business in this case, I'm speaking with like the capital B, is in a popular position in the sense of, I believe it is the broad truth that most people, liberal and conservative alike, would like to be able to again find a way with the aid of vaccinations to engage safely in society with still added caution, but not live in, let's say, red light anymore and live in yellow light where we have masks on, where we have vaccines on, but we're working and we're still engaging with each other and we're trying to be as safe and as mindful as possible, but like we're still being social creatures. I'm still out there teaching guitar lessons. You know, we're doing stuff. We're still making food and serving it to each other. Uh, all, all these sorts, we want to be able to, we want to be able to go and sit down in a restaurant like that. I don't need to get a poll. I don't need to see strong support or uh, slight support on this one either. Uh, like I, I, I've got a real good sense that most people want to be able to do this stuff in some way, even if it is in a limited way. And I think, broadly speaking, yes, there are people who are going to be unhappy a little bit that there are limits, but they would prefer limits than nothing. And there are going to be people who for many, the limit is going to be the sweet spot, which is basically, it's a utilitarian argument. Um, and like, in this sense, utility, it's populist. Uh, you know, this is actually a populist argument. You're doing what would generally broadly make people feel good. People want to be able to work, make income. Um, you know, I want to be able to play shows again. That's still kind of like tough going here, and that affects my income. I want people to be able to go to concert venues safely. You know, if they shut concert venues down again, that's bad. Um, I think business is going to have America, broadly speaking, on its side with this idea of, yeah, vaccines, masks, but like open, you know, still working and stuff is the way to go. Um, especially absent any sort of n notes or rumblings on DC 
of future COVID stimulus spending right now. If this is where we're at, then yeah. this is clearly the best path forward. And, you know, it is what it is. Well, yeah, you know, Sanders couldn't turn this into a discussion about Medicare for all. I still don't understand how, you know, the Democrats don't have any sort of answer. It, I think it's just going to come down to big corporations saying you're going to get vaccinated. Finance is going to fall in line behind it. I don't think like the next story, Biden saying that they're going to withhold federal federal funds. Does anybody believe that he has the stones to do that? It's, it's weird. I, it's that 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 mechanism, like that particular stick of like trying to withhold Medicare cash from nursing homes. Like, I don't necessarily love the idea of like sanctioning our old people, though. I mean, I want them I want them to vaccinate, like, I want them to vaccinate their workers. I want them to require their workers to be vaccinated. But I like it's such it's a, it's such a blunt instrument. It's it's so like non-targeted, like it's literally like sanctions on like that that particular route like withholding medicare and, cash to nursing homes is like just galaxy brain <laughs> it, it, what what makes my brain hurt is i still think as i weave through the moral maze there that it's actually right or better than the alternative of leaving the elderly to the tender mercies yeah. of the delta variant uh yeah right like like would it be better to give grandma less cash than she needs or kill her? Um, and, 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 yeah, no, I'm not saying either is good, mind you, but. But in, in this scenario, it's not like they're, they're giving the, the facility that provides grandma services less cash. So it's grandma's not going to get less cash. It's going to be like, you're going to have these, uh, these institutions that don't necessarily want to comply cutting more corners i i it just it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like a win no no it doesn't you're, you're absolutely right Dan. but at this point a year and a half into the pandemic with where we are you know it's not a choice between a good thing and a bad thing global food production is starting to be hurt and once that starts to bite in they're going to be done that around. that's the real problem and then the other issue is i really don't know I know we're frustrated with Biden. I know that he's weak. Um, I've ex made it clear my lack of, I'm not enamored with Sanders or Warren's level of fight, especially after Warren said fight so many damn times last year or the year prior. Um, not exactly enamored with that, but I have a really hard time imagining anyone, like our preferred Democrat, getting a guy like DeSantis, who is hell-bent on running Florida like a circus. Like, I, what is the tool to bring that dog to heel? I don't know. I really don't. Well, no, that's that's why I'm so upset that, you know, they didn't, like, have a bold reform agenda. The, the response to DeSantis was getting things done, and they don't have any interest. I in Okay, off the top of my head here, uh, federal building audit. I would at least, like, quietly go, hey, remember that giant building collapse that happened? Uh, that, you know, Army, yeah. Army Corps of Engineers swarming all over Florida. Uh, Ron, time for you to make some choices here. You can stop radiating COVID into the nation. Because, um, like, you know, let's be real about this. Uh, 
the Florida numbers are not just like out of hand, like, yes, the nation is spiking. Florida accounts for around one third of all of the cases in the country. Um, there are twice as many cases in Florida right now as there are in the state of Texas. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that's also true with California too. Um, like, and yes, it, these are more populous states. Um, Florida is doing things that are wrong. Yes, people go there for vacation. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, all that. But like, they're outperforming on a you know per million like person thing right now. And this Delta variant is running hog wild through Florida. Florida, a vacation to last the rest of your life. Oh, and don't even get me started about Sturgis. Uh, Sturgis is the biggest Sturgis ever. 700,000 anticipated up there. Um, I was reading reports earlier about food trucks where people have been testing positive for COVID and still working. Yeah. The, and still working. The, the market for used Harleys is probably going to crash soon. I, I mean, like, this is... We're really cruising into... What Fauci dubbed last year the dark winter, but uh, Fauci uh, has lots of different adjectives and lots of different things on different days, but doesn't seem to have things that line up squarely with where we were at last year. Uh, yeah, right? Yeah, this this winter is setting up to be interesting. And I mean, you can see all of these pieces that could lead to really bad outcomes, but it's impossible to know, like, you know, nothing survives contact with the enemy. And right now, the enemy is winter and cold and flu season. And I mean, we're still in the height of summer, and it's looking like this. And we know that COVID tends to brew and brew and brew and then explode. And, you know, it's who knows what's going to happen before spring. I, I worry a lot, given where we're at we're going to be back in school in September. We're going into fall, which is starting to get into cold and flu season. And if we start at this high of a baseline number, um, we're at 168,000. And it's in the middle. Yeah, like this, the second Biden week of August. Wanting to, Biden wanting schools open so that we can have a return to normalcy. And it's just a, a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated is probably not going to age well. Yeah, I was working and I decided to pop on the press conference with the uh, schools guy and Saki where they're talking about their plan to reopen schools. And it is very, very clear that the administration does not have a plan other than full speed ahead with reopening schools. Or if they do, they're absolutely playing coy on it right now, which is bad politics. Um, if they have a plan, they should announce it. Um, they should be encouraging all these red states to follow their plan explicitly right now. And if slash when um, uh, this blows up, um, be able to scapegoat it on the red states. Right now, the way they're handling it doesn't even allow for that. Um, right now, the way they're handling it is there is not going to be a Delta variant problem. Uh, they got asked point blank. Is there a number that you are looking at where you might consider in school uh, learning to be a bad idea. They couldn't come up with a number. If they have one, they're hiding it from the public. Um, that's not better. That's worse. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In no, I, th state, this is a real disaster brewing for them. Yeah, in my state, the the Democratic governor has just abdicated her responsibility and has just pushed that decision to the counties, which does no one any good because I mean counties are even smaller. California than here. Uh, <laughs> With our with our with Gavin Newsom embroiled in the recall campaign has done the same thing and kicked it down. Which California? I mean, 
uh, the or Oregon similar similar situation where you have populous cities and then very rural counties and you have disparate numbers. But I mean, it's it's everywhere up here, and like leaving leaving it to um, leaving it to rural health, uh, leaving it to Republican uh, health directors is going to get people killed. It's going to get school children killed. It's I think we're really cruising to a crisis here. Uh, and I know some of the numbers with kids are positive, but like last year when they had schools going, when they had schools going, they, it was with so many asterisks, right? Like a lot of them were, we had teachers on last year, right? We have Doug and Brian on. That was a great episode. I thought that like, like to actually like, and that wasn't had nothing to do with me. It had to do with those guys being really great and actually offering really meaningful firsthand perspective. Um, I'm really glad they, they're part of the show too. They've done a nice job as well this year. Um, like they sort of outlined how like Doug was talking about how only a third of his class would be in the classroom on any given day and the rest would be remote. Um, I, I mean, that's not how it's going to be. It's going to be full in person. Um, that is full kids passing in the hallways. And all and of, of their thing. parents aren't in lockdown anymore. The society around them. It's not even, it, I mean, it's not even just about like the, uh, like the conditions within the building and things spreading there. It's like the, the society at large, like the shutdown was protecting them. Wait, well, you're saying these kids don't drive themselves to school every day yeah. in their automobiles. Well, yeah. And how many, you know, like in these small towns that, you know, the Delta variant is going to spread more easily. You have lower vaccination rates. You have, you know, hospitals that are already full. You know, I'm seeing what I saw last winter, which is, you know, ambulances in the middle of the night heading from rural communities to bigger communities. And um, from what I understand uh, from some people who are in medicine is those are those are patients being transferred that they, they do that mostly at night. So, you know, we're already seeing all of these pieces in place and there's, there's just no willpower left to deal with it. All right, it is Cuomo time. And that is uh, my favorite time on the show here. I, I love Cuomo time. Andrew Cuomo, uh, the L Letitia James DA report has come back and uh, they found that Cuomo engaged in unwelcome and non-consensual touching, made comments of a suggestive nature to current and former state employees, as well as a number of women outside of state government. And at this point now, at long last, Joe Biden and uh, many numbers, uh, the entire New York Democratic congressional delegation have called on Cuomo to resign. Uh, this has been a really interesting moment. And, and in a way, I view it as a little bit of a testimony to people as heuristics because these numbers for Cuomo were actually surprisingly strong considering how bad the evidence was. And what really seems to have moved the numbers is the fact that the Democrats have now finally given the permission structure to, at long last, say it's okay to say that Cuomo is bad. Now, the polls say 70% say that Cuomo should resign, 88% of Republicans, 57% of Democrats, still kind of low, 76% of independents, 73% um, of men, 67% of women. Um, yeah, this is... It's interesting. I mean, you still have 36% of Democrats in the state saying that Cuomo should hang in there. Would love, love 
to hear from them, like have them on a show, uh, not any of this show, but like any show and hear like, what is it that Cuomo's doing that's, uh, it makes this okay? I get the impression that someone in a smoke filled room went, Hey guys, if we don't turn around on this rapey McForehead is going to get reelected. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing that they, that like, you don't have a, a New York, uh, state delegation split on this. I mean, it's good to have a unified front, like on a justifiably like correct position. Um, I wish they'd gotten there sooner. Uh, this gets to another thing that's really interesting to me about these polls so like obviously the top line about Cuomo should he resign like yes we've been saying that for months um this is really interesting because once I see some evidence for people as heuristics but I also see some fairly strong evidence here for the backfire effect being like kind of real that once you have made emotional stakes in a position it is very hard sometimes impossible to back off of that position even when it is demonstrated to be wrong and we so often think that that is exclusive to republicans but it's not and this is a really good example of like how democrats even after leadership coming all the way from the federal top but also at your congressional level is like no 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 we're moving on we're moving on they're like well yeah, yeah, yeah but i made up my mind on this i had a say on this and i made a vote yeah if there's one thing people like less than being wrong it's talking about it no like people like to be quietly wrong uh and, and i'm fine with that so long as they don't inflict their wrongness on others but so often that seems to not be the case you know, the frustrating thing is they've really, I mean, waiting so long, they've in a lot of ways ceded some of their high ground against the Trumpism, you know, Republicans in the next election, because the even turning around now doesn't change the fact that there's, you know, lots of sound bites out there of Democrats defending Como that are going to be used in attack ads because the Republicans know how to make an attack ad. Yeah, I look, um, I, I mean, they should have cut bait on Cuomo months ago at this point. Because uh, this was always where this was going to go. And to me, I think like the most likely outcome is what's happening right now. Cuomo, the report comes back. It's really bad. Cuomo, despite how bad the report is, much like Trump, is not going to resign and is going to use all of his political leverage possible to make the most out of this. Chris Cuomo does, should not be on television anymore providing cover for his brother. He has completely destroyed his credibility. Uh, he, I, here's to hoping CNN uh, gives him the shove. Him and Jim Acosta. Jim Acosta, like, look, for, for as strongly as I have gone after Ron DeSantis on this show, and if anyone thinks I've been kid-loving Ron DeSantis, I do not know what show you have been listening to. Uh, I thought Acosta's line of, can we call this the DeSantis variant, to be absolutely asinine. It's a global variant. It's ridiculous. It's it's gratuitously political. It's not, you know, the defense was Florida is the epicenter of COVID of the country. Yes, I know. I said it was radiating COVID earlier in this episode, but that does not excuse naming the variant after one person.
early on in the pandemic, it was New York and LA, and there would have been much, much hand wringing over over it being the the LA virus or the New York virus or any any. There's a reason we don't name these after locations anymore. Uh, it's beyond it being like negative, like like negative. It's wrong. It's it it does not accurately reflect, and that's why it inherently is negative because there is no way. I mean. Even when you call it the Wuhan flu or whatever, it's stupid because like, yes, it technically came from that region, but like that region also has nothing to do with the actual origins of the coronavirus, which is a virus that's existed for hundreds of years. Well, yeah, you know, CNN, I don't pay a lot of attention to it, but I dip in once in a while for the show or whatever. And, you know, I look in and go, wow, you guys are really terrible. You've reacted to Fox News by trying to be like them just on the left, cheering for your side. And I mean, there's a whole series of shows that could and should be done on the state of journalism and the problems it's causing. Yeah, I, I think this is a fair point, too. CNN is essentially a, cheering for the Democratic Party, but because they are still trying to position themselves as center, unlike MSNBC, which is sort of like cheers for the Democratic Party, like... CNN, on balance, has people on their network that pulls the Democratic Party to the right slightly. It's essentially like the network for Joe Biden to watch when he feels like MSNBC is giving him too much heat. Like a live cam going to like a split screen where what's Trump watching on one side and what's Biden watching on the other? And just like a live view of that. CNN, the most viewed uh, news network in Delaware. Next, this is a, this is an important topic. So a third police officer who responded to the U.S. Capitol insurrection has died from suicide, according to the Metropolitan Police Department. Like they are getting hit really hard by this. And this is a thing with these suicides of officers who responded this day that essentially keeps the tragedy fresh, raw and real for the entire police department. Uh, Officer Gunther Hashida was found dead in his residence on Thursday, July 29th. Lord knows what he heard that day during that attack. This is the third known suicide of an officer who responded to the Capitol riots. Um, and this is the second known suicide by a DC police officer specifically. Um, that I wanna say more as the backdrop for what happened this week in our next big topic. Uh, we ended the last episode where I did a brief recap of the importance of the Flight 93 election essay by Michael uh, Anton that was published at the Claremont Institute briefly prior to the election under a pseudo-Roman alias. And that has been a forerunner for an increased amount of intellectual ink being shed by the right um, around revolution, nationalism, uh, the need to uh, take take control of the cockpit. Just this last week, Christopher Roach, uh, I don't want to say like a more normal conservative or whatever, but like, you know, not Alex Jones, the Salazar op option. To survive today's leftist threat, we need to be committed to acquiring and using power in service of a counter-revolution. Um, Roger Kimball, who is like once a bow-tied dweeb, at some point there will be a revolt. The longer this arbitrary insanity persists, the more violent the reaction will be. July 31st, 2021. 
The most cheerful headline I have seen in weeks was on Glenn Reynolds' New York Post column, No, Karen, we're not masking again. I hope he is right. I do wonder, though. I have no doubt that the second part of this headline, a winning GOP message for 2022 and beyond, is correct. It's at least correct if it was expressed as conditional. It would be a winning strategy if it were adopted. As Reynolds notes, there's a great deal of pent-up frustration and resentment over the inconvenience, loss of freedom, and the general climate of pestering that the government's pandemic response has led to. Yeah, um, these guys continue to seed the wind, uh, to quote Brett Kavanaugh, uh, a little reference from his uh, confirmation hearings, for this idea that it might be okay you know, to maybe do a little, you know, revolty walty And they know what they're doing because there was one just seven months ago. Eight months ago now? Yeah, about eight months ago now. So this week, Tucker Carlson, one of the highest rated cable news hosts in television, went to Hungary. And platform is the wrong term. We'll talk about platforming more here. I guess... I guess they sort of did like a, a joint venture, it would maybe be the best way of putting it, where Tucker Carlson had on the president of Hungary, um, who was embroiled in a tough re-elect campaign, I guess you could say his platform, and proceeded to applaud Viktor Orban um, and say that this guy is essentially governing his country the right way. Um, and his version of the right way, uh, just to read a little bit here, Viktor Orban has placed restrictions on press freedoms. He has opposed immigration and unfettered trade. He has had outspoken advocacy for traditional family values and ethno-nationalist politics uh, that push back against academia and internationalists. Um, so he's, he's went after more than 300 different journalists as well. Um, and lawyers and businessmen who aren't allied with his political party. And he's also accused of using Pegasus spyware, uh, to which he purchased from the Israeli government, to tap the phones to mine all of this personal data. He's using the power of government in a really, really malicious way. And what all of this signals to me, I know this has been a long setup here, but all, what all of this signals to me is whether or not Trump runs again is really sort of a will he won't he sort of boring conversation because the reality is is that the true deep embrace of any means necessary minoritarian power that is in the republican dna now um cheat to win you know if you got it if but above all else don't lose if you you know if you must win or if you must cheat cheat i, I mean I, I think there's nothing nothing new under the sun there um, I mean, in the in the previous generation, it was William William F. Buckley writing about Pinochet and Franco, like uh, the 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 right wing uh, the right the most right wing mouthpiece has always had a had a fawning relationship with uh, fascist dictatorship. You know, but that was that was always with the hope of seeing what that might look like in practice in America. We're now right after doing that and, and so i'm with you this 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 very much rhymes with yesteryear but but we we cross this very important door here labeled trump and trump matters because he is actually the experiment in practice well yeah um did you have you know the the first of all the the capital officers who committed suicide i mean january 6th failed because a handful of officers and the generals in the military 
uh, stood up and did the right thing. And, and it's clear that they're not getting the support they need. Well, while we here mostly think that, you know, there needs to be reform by the police, like we owe those people a huge debt for saving the process. And obviously they're not getting it. Yeah, let's just call it what it is. That was absolute police heroism. Like, like that, that, like, cause, cause they could have let that spill into actual carnage of lawmakers and everything like that. And, and like, look, we, we get frustrated with all of them, but the idea that you let the Looney Tunes go and maybe kill AOC or Ilhan Omar or, you know, pluck off Nancy Pelosi or something like that, all very likely targets with that crowd. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that is all but for the hard work of the officers there on the site that day. Yeah, the officers there, there were generals who made speeches beforehand, making it clear that they were going to defend the constitutional process. Like, you know, and, and we are we are in debt to those people. And what I gather from that story is that those people are not getting the support that they need on uh, Tucker Carlson and all this, this. is what I mean. You know, we didn't do anything about January 6th. We sort of sat around and said, well, we need to have congressional hearings. And there's there's those stories from, you know, those countries today, and, and he's a minor figure, but Kurt Schillinger, uh, the 38 Pitches guy, there was a thread from him just August 7th saying that we need to throw liberals in prison, nationalize social media, um, ban leftists and throw them in prison like it was a whole thing and you know that you're seeing it's not that he matters is that you're seeing more and more of this building up over time and we're not actually confronting it in any meaningful way there's there's been a ton of the like the better dead than red sentiment like um building like uh, being amplified for a while, and those when those people are saying that they think that's Joe Biden, like that's how that's how like out of um, out of actual perspective uh, that targeting is like it's Nancy Pelosi yeah. and the radical left. I mean, that's what they see. That's what they see in their emails. That's that's I mean, you the the other thing, like, you know, I think people maybe want this to not be happening, but it is. And Joe Biden's one of them. But I mean, like there are a lot of people closer to our political balance who I think want this to be less of a thing than it clearly is. But all the messaging right down to don't have it on the slate, don't want to even talk about it. But Kevin McCarthy saying it's going to be hard to resist hitting Nancy Pelosi with the gavel, even as a joke and not backing away from that immediately. Again, in the context of the current climate that they're in, these guys work together. When he is saying that, it is sending a message way out there that like, yeah, I'll be upset if there is political violence against the Democrats, but don't necessarily count on me to do much about it going forward. You know, what would my response really be? That's what's, that's what's known as a green light. He knows what he's doing here. He he 100% knows what he's doing. Um, so I, I worry a lot about this. Um, I mean, yeah, he'll help Orban get reelected. You know, that's going to be bad for Hungary. Um, and what's been happening with Hungary, and we've talked about the stuffing of the Supreme Court and everything, too. This is a very clear, as the right likes to say, virtue signal um, about what they like out of politics. And I think, you know, to build off of Dan's point real quickly before I read, you know, we move on to the next topic here, uh, which will be a fun one, I'm sure. Um, 
real quickly, I think what you're dead on the money with, Dan, is that the right, this is such a clear transition because they have made it expressly clear that they view non-majoritarian instruments within the Republican system of government to be perhaps the most valid. Um, that the not the non-majoritarian instruments are what legitimize the majoritarian instruments. Um, what I mean by this in practice is that, okay, yes, they have voting, um, but it's the filibuster that makes sure that the votes are really legitimate. And that if you remove the filibuster, you'd have this, oh, the, the majority steamrolling things. It, it's thanks to these cooling plate mechanisms this legitimizes the whole process um the republicans fetishize this because they have a hard time winning um when it comes to popular votes uh and they view that as a way of essentially having paternalistic control so at the end of the day when you start there with a preference for the filibuster when you start there with a preference for a paternalist supreme court that overturns laws and stuff then the logical end route is why not just have a strong man Sorry, I was fiddling with my camera went nuts. Oh, you didn't have a take there. You're just you're just gonna just fiddling. Dan, you gotta take. I, I mean it's yeah, we're we're yeah, we're things are things are very adrift. <laughs> um yeah, but, no, I, I, but, but I was agreeing with your initial point that, like, I, I do think, it, on one hand, it, it's definitely part of a succession. On another hand, Trump was this line that we, you know, the Rubicon of sorts, where like, like, it, you know, not the first Rubicon, but like yet another river that, like, they cro that we've crossed over that, you know, is going to drive the, the intellectual your, conversation. Your, your characterization of the, um, like the the non majoritarian. Uh, them, them fetishizing those non-majoritarian uh, aspects is, I think, generous because I, I think, all, like, all, there are significant folks, uh, a significant chunk of that that crowd that would, uh, if you were talking to them about it, would say, like, I don't think people who don't own property should be allowed to vote. They like you would get some, you would get some wild ass shit out of that crowd. Yeah, you know what? I to your point, when you speak to the rank and well, file know, voters, you usually hear some weird rule about who they don't think should be able to vote. Well, yeah, we you know we talk a lot about that and how it looks today, but you know the founding of our country, there was there was a concept of you know protecting you know the system and the process from the tyranny of the majority, and there was writing about that. And you know at the time that was different than it is now. It was you know landholders, a smaller group of people in states, but. You know that has that has not uh, scaled well, as they would say. Yeah, that. and it's exactly that stuff that I'm talking about when I'm saying it's like thus. In order to prevent against the tyranny of the majority, you need these extremely legitimate non-majoritarian mechanisms in there. Yeah, yeah, the, these very perfect non-majoritarian instruments. Um, all right. Speaking, I guess, sort of that. It's not the perfect transition, but it's it is a transition that we got. Um. Nina Turner ran for Congress. Um, she did not win in her primary against Chantel Brown. Uh, Ali Mutnick over at Politico, who I read, it's not because I agree with everything they say. They just represent an important viewpoint that you do need to represent if you're going to try to do commentary in a world that actually accounts for what do they think in D.C. What Ali Mutnick says, uh, she's a campaign reporter. 
What we could take away from the Chantel Brown victory is that the Democratic establishment is popular. And in the Biden era, it really does seem like progressives have had a harder time making a case against Joe Biden. Um, I don't really have a problem with the second part of that sentence. Like, like that part of the blurb is absolutely anodyne to me. Um, the part where the Democratic establishment is popular uh, beggars belief a little bit, especially with regards to Chantel Brown explicitly. I, I don't mean you can talk about the shape of the district itself. Uh, I mean, how do you look at this bizarrely shaped district and extrapolate that nationally speaking, the Democratic Party establishment is popular when this is a district that looks like, you know, looks like it's shaped like Delaware or something? Yeah, I think it's Pop, it, it's obvious to most people that what's actually popular is not knowing when Donald Trump goes to the bathroom because he threatens nuclear war with someone. That's what's popular. You know, and to blow that up to say that centrism is popular when you know most people don't vote, I think that's that's you know framing according to the outcome you'd like. I, I think she's definitely finding the the half a bowl of shit comment. Uh, a, a regrettable phrasing, maybe. Um, but I, I, the 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 profile of it, of a as a like the amount of national attention that it got, the fact that uh, that Clyburn, the Clyburn was there, like working working on that while the eviction moratorium like fell apart, like while while some other stuff fell apart. Uh, like, like HR one, you know, you could be working yeah, like, on HR one, but you're going after Nina Turner because she said something that you took personally. Yeah. And admit like admitted to that, like said that explicitly. <laughs> I mean, again, the, the only reason I say I say it like that specifically because that is his defense of these actions. I, I mean, personally, I'm a little more cynical and think that it's not about his ego and that it's a little more calculating and a little bit more about power control and like like he's not worried about some one slight it was about nerfing nina turner in no small part because of the bullshit thing also because of her flirtations with the movement for a people's party um you know you, you know doing that it, you, she's been really trying to butter her bread on both sides she's in the democratic party when she wants to be in the democratic party she is trying to be outside of the Democratic Party when she wants to be outside of the Democratic Party. And like, that's going to be really hard if you want to be the reform agent inside of the CBC, which is one of the most powerful caucuses inside of the Democratic Party. If you're going in to reform the CBC, a project that I think is good and right and I want people to undertake, you need to understand, earnestly speaking, that you are not removing the CBC from the Democratic Party. Like, you are using the CBC as a way of controlling the Democratic Party. You are joining the party to change the party. Yeah, and, and um, whether you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, you know, it's, it's clear that the reformist wing of the everyone centered and left is just a disorganized mess at this point with no clear policy or agenda or plan or anything. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, okay, so what do we do? What do we prioritize? How do you move forward? There's, there's probably no route to, uh, to, to bettering the, the CBC um, that does not involve Clyburn graciously handing over the reins or at least somewhat begrudgingly handing over the reins, not them like, like you're not going to strike him down to take the reins. Like it's like, that's, it's a, uh, that's that's not the way that it's going to work. He's too old 
like it's i mean yeah it's like go you have to surround him and then like all of a sudden Clyburn Rose is like oh man i'm 82 and i've got no moves left my only move now is to resign yeah the move like he he has to be left with no choice but to graciously hand it over to to a carefully arranged uh a carefully negotiated uh uh next is there any is there anyone in Democratic leadership under 70 years old? I swear to God. I mean, they'll they'll make Hakeem Jeffries into a leadership figure here in short order, and he'll be around like 50 or something like that. But yeah. Jamie Harrison. Ja- oh, yeah. Jamie. Ja- he he is a leader. That, that leader is the one that needs to be in quotes. Uh, election dynamo, Jamie Harrison. Uh, yeah. No. So, I mean, like, look, it, it's no, it's going to be a tough sell. Um, And I, I think... I think Turner has some things going for her, um, but I also think like there are other key things missing, and she wasn't necessarily the right person for the moment. And I'm kind, I like in a weird way, like while I really reviled Chantel Brown's campaign, especially like the canned clapping. I mean, like like everything about this campaign sucked ass. Um, I did breathe a slight sigh of relief when Turner lost, and it wasn't close, only because. It did mean, in looking for silver linings here, that we're probably done with Turner as a candidate, which I do think is a good thing. Turner, she had ran a slightly better campaign and had been ready for this end of campaign onslaught that, like, was almost identical to what happened to Sanders. So, like, like why didn't you see it come? You know what I mean? Like, it's on one hand, yes, Democrat, like, establishment going to establishment. We know this, though. Like, you know, it's, this isn't, it's not 2015. At what point do you, at what point do you expect Lucy to pull the football away? Right. If we get mad at, this is a great point. If we get mad at the democratic establishment for falling for the Lucy routine, it has to also port onto our people when they do things that are like most obvious outcome in the world. Yeah. Bill Crystal and the democratic, the morning Joe crowd are going to decide that Chantel Brown's in the new bees knees and give her the star treatment. Absolutely. Bringing a ton of resources to bear at, at the last moment when you don't have time to respond, you don't have time to spin out. That was, it's literally, they've done it twice. Now it's going to happen again and again until it gets beaten. And there Until are a couple, beaten a couple times. Right. And there's one option, you know, like there's a, a number of options. One off the top of my head is you scorch Brown early. You make it so that the late influx of cash kind of has a Bloombergy effect where like it helps, but it doesn't save. Um, like, like you, but the way you do that is by scorching. Cause that was the problem for Bloomberg. Is it like by the time he got into the race, every he we all talked about Bloomberg at least on some level. I was like, not Bloomberg, no, no. Like, and so when he got in, he was able to force the issue, but only to twenty percent. Um, uh, yeah, that's one move. Or you have a war chest ready so that when it goes hard at the end, you're going hard too. Um, like I mean, you almost ba- especially if you're running with the lead. That's the time where you really start pulling in the resources and go like, we're going to blast on that last month here. Uh, we'll be a week ahead on their final air push, um, and we'll go soft in like week three and close really hard on week four. Yeah, all of the people who are really good at this sort of strategy stuff and aren't just partisans are cashing big checks. And guess where those big checks are? All right. So we've been talking a lot this episode and the last episode about the rise of 
the right wing's intellectual interest in fascism, um, increased intellectual ink being spilt on, you know, fasci sort of anti-majoritarian ideas and that sort of thing. And there were a couple of interactions this week that have once again spawned a bit of debate on our side about how do we engage or deal with the political right? You know, is it, I mean, for lack of better terms, is it essentially see a Nazi punch a Nazi? Um, is there, yeah, right. Hit, hit, beat on the brat with a baseball bat sort of approach. Uh, you know, I feel you, I feel you. Um, or is it a situation wherein um, the ideas are like the horse is out of the barn here at this point and the the ideas have to be confronted and debated on some level uh because they're not just going to die in the darkness because they now have had their president um in the last segment we were talking about like the rubicani sort of moment and this is one of these sort of like intellectual rubicon sort of moments where maybe maybe we have crossed over so that that is the debate that has spawned up um real quickly let me get y'all's take on that so the left is still suffering under the delusion that if they can just get through to people, they'll all become leftists instead of encouraging right wingers to stop like creeping towards authoritarianism in return to their core values of, of freedom and the stuff that they care about and have a policy debate between rational people. Like you're not going to turn most of these people into leftists. That's not going to happen. And it is a waste of time and energy to try and do that. But you can convince them to return to what, what used to be conservative principles. And you're going to disagree with them a lot, but I would rather disagree with a conservative than a fascist. That would definitely be the, the, the preferable outcome. I, I, I don't know about the merits of D debating them, especially like like structured debate, like some of these online uh, the 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 online um, ones have been really um, just they're horrible. Everybody's like the it's it's such a science of like gish gallop, just throwing out as as many points. Even if you're trying to, uh, they're just going to throw out as many points, and you're not going to be able to refute all of them because they're just they're they're. Well, not word vomiting at you it's it's old school yeah, debating people online is a waste of time i'm talking about like people you know in real life you know arguing online is sure is an idiot's game but and the thing is is it's frustrating but because you know you see you look around and you see the numbers but you got to understand how close this stuff is if you can talk to 20 people and one of them says, hey, you're right, we need to walk this extreme stuff back and have a more rational policy disagreement, you've, you've changed every election in the land if everyone can reach one of 20 people. Yeah, I, you know, I, I go back and forth. I mean, I, I, like, I think y'all are espousing viewpoints I'm at least like receptive to. Like, first and foremost, I agree, Robert. Um, I anyone who thinks we if we go out and we debate these people we will convert them to recant away from right-wing politics to oh how wrong i was um i i think that's really unlikely I, I i really at this stage of the game i'm like you robert i think that the best you can hope for is conservatives 
Um, you convert them back away from this sort of new fascism towards, you know, standard libertarian conservative uh, ish sort of thing um, or, or an idiosyncratic person um, who, you know, maybe has like a few liberally wrinkles where they're cool about this or that or whatever. Um, for me, when I'm thinking about debate and like, you know, I, I think it's good to do the interpersonal debate with people, although I'll admit sometimes I lose patience. It's just it's hard when you're like constantly reading about this stuff at a 400 level like it, it gets really you know like to give someone a history lesson it's hard to like package that in a way that's not patronizing um but also is within 30 seconds you know like allow me to tell you in 30 seconds how joe manchin's been sabotaging you know politics inside of the country here for the better part of like the last decade right like you know but, but that comes to to your point there if there's one thing that we know how to do on our side, it's how to take a loss and keep going for what you believe in. That's something we that's an experience we can share plenty of. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think when you get like, I mean, Vosh and Mal Malcolm Nance is an even better example. These are people I'm not trying to hang my sign eyes. These guys represent my politics per se. I think when these guys have a strong outing, against a person like a Ben Shapiro or a person like a Charlie Kirk. And like, well, I don't think that uh, the debate about critical race theory between Vosh and Charlie Kirk is like required watching to better understand critical race theory, where I do think it serves some serious utility is like Kirk got like outclassed just through the entirety of that conversation. And if that rattles someone who is a Charlie Kirk watcher to stop watching Charlie Kirk, I think that is of merit on some level because sort of working on this like like the other way around the big problem i think we'd all agree has been you get on youtube and you will eventually get algorithmically suggested joe rogan who's talking to charlie kirk who's talking to this guy they go on dave rubin's show with the battlefield of ideas is fully explored um and dave rubin used to be in a facile way, like, you know, doing somewhat of a liberal defense of things just to get knocked over by whoever the conservative was. But you see this like, you know, circular media thing. And I think there's actually some utility in these people, especially when they're really comfortable, like a Charlie Kirk, like a Ben Shapiro, getting outclassed when they think it's going to go really well. I, I mean, I, I'll always take uh, Charlie Kirk or Ben Shapiro taking an L like on while it's being recorded, that's um, um, always, always great, but it's uh, like, uh, uh, like. Well, I want to differentiate that um, outclassed from just regular run of the mill owning. You know what I mean? When someone's actual communication style and their ability to formulate ideas is just shown to be at a level below. Like, I, I mean, listening to Vosh, formulate his ideas he clearly just thinks at a higher level not just that his politics are more correct than kirk's but like he's just clearly a smarter dude than kirk and that comes through in the broadcast so are you talking about just the difference between someone with debate skill and someone who's obviously done their homework and knows the issues inside out upside down and backwards yes yeah it's it's not it's not um it's like when a person who thinks that there's the flat earth 
uh, this is a great episode. I, I found it a while ago. This radio show in Austin where they actually had like a flat earth guy who was like one of the leading experts in flat earth debating like a real astronaut who's like legitimately actually went to space. Um, it's not about your debate tactics at that point. The like the person himself sort of serves as like a resounding defense of the argument and the position. Flat Earth, Andrew. My channel is Friend of Yahweh. It's a YouTube channel. So okay. I am a flat Earth filmmaker. Okay. I've done some music videos. You can look up uh, Round and Curvy, Nevermore. Those are my two okay. top ones. All right. And what is your opening statement, please? Opening statement. The Earth is flat and stationary. The sun, moon, and stars are all very close. Um, we could possibly be dealing with some kind of rear projection with the sun and the moon, but that's up to debate. Um, the community is basically a bunch of free-thinking people who um, realize we've been indoctrinated from a young age with this the whole spinning ball through TV, movies, uh, just the culture. You know, it's just right. it is what we grew up with. Yeah, so agreed. We're, we are now questioning that. You've got things like the P900, the Nikon camera that is shooting across the plane. It's bringing bringing boats back over the horizon that's actually one of the first things that just like blew my mind i was mm. you know a friend of mine said people think the earth is flat i said that's crazy and i went to try and debunk it so basically anybody who believes in the spinning ball is just somebody who has not tried to debunk flat earth and i mean legitimately give it the good you know the good the good youtube watching the good scientific method which oh. is is it observable does it match our observations uh, well, first, I'd like to tell you that I do know that the Earth is round by personal direct observation. I spent two weeks in orbit around the Earth. Uh, I have, uh, I'm have i a seasoned explorer. I've been both to the North Pole and to the South Pole to see the 24-hour day and the sun spinning around the Earth's axis. I don't know. I think we all, we all think that we're... We all think that we're astronauts. <laughs> But we're not all astronauts, and that's that's what I, I mean. I think it's good when someone who thinks there's an a, they are an astronaut actually has to deal with you know. It's like when someone who thinks they're a karate master actually has to deal with a real karate master. So I think those moments are of utility. I think I mean to this point, I want more Sam Cedar. You know, like basically the Stephen Crowder moment. What was that of? Like, that's why did Crowder run? If, if if this wasn't useful, a guy like Crowder doesn't run, right? Like, you know, if, if Crowder thought, no, 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 there's utility in me staying here and actually going at it with Sam Cedar, he would have done it. But Crowder knew there's nothing good that is going to come of me and my audience seeing me go to town with Sam Cedar. Only, only harm is going to come from this. Yeah, you'll notice Ben Shapiro doesn't go on anyone else's show where he does, his editors aren't in play. No, and that's why the Mar thing, I think, caught him so flat-footed. Um, you know, he went on Mar to promote this book. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen this, again, not required watching. Um, but he goes on Mar's show, definitely not required watching, to no, yeah, um, to talk about this book about cancel culture, like like that the left is engaging in new fat. It's essentially, I mean, really, Jonah Goldberg. I hope sues Ben Shapiro because, like, what Ben Shapiro has just written is liberal fascism. Only eight years later, like, like yeah, with a book that Goldberg's like now, like, was like, no, that was a dumb book. I should have written that. And of course, Ben Shapiro's doing it again. Um, and Bill Maher, you know, eventually gets to well, read the book. 
think that you're saying some stuff that I agree with. Remember, this is Bill Maher. He's worried about cancel culture. He he's worried that someone's going to finally meet to him. Um, but you know, even Mars, like I read this book and I go, where's the other half of this book? And you can see Ben Shapiro's face just turn. Like it never even occurred to him that Mar was going to do anything other than coddle him and have a wonderful conversation. Like Shapiro hasn't learned from the Andrew Neal thing. Um, so that's the other thing is like, you can press this button multiple times is the other thing we were learning. So, you know, a lot of people talk about him, but how dangerous do you think that Ben Shapiro is outside of his show? Like if he were to run for something, how does, does this guy survive a debate? No, you know, I think Jank Uger sort of demonstrated in a way that like you can be big in politics punditry and that doesn't necessarily port into you being a really good political candidate. Um, I mean, you know, think about it. Like we, we haven't, it's like if Maddow ran, she could probably win representative. But, I, you know, which state she winning Senate? And I think it'd be a hard Senate fight. Yeah. Well, it's like Rush Limbaugh never ran for anything. And I think that's because he knew that outside of his set, he would get trounced on so many things that he, he never spoke outside of his own editors and stuff. There, there comes, like, these things definitely have use for knocking these guys down. And I guess it's, like, it's, it's helped to... Uh, kind of sideline and isolate people like Alex Jones. It, it, it helps to like, it helps to like sideline them, but like that, that, that uh, definitely has, has merit. It's just how to like engaging with anything, like engaging with them after that, or like they, they, then they go back to their, they go back to their holes. And then what do you do? You, you want to try and chase them there, chase them down there. Like you can't go onto their show. No, no, you, you can't yeah. chase them, and they're going to do damage control. Like, like th those, those are granted. Um, I mean, no, you, there has to be real purviews on this. I, again, like, I, I don't want anyone to just try their hand to go and debate a right-winger because, like, that actually, to, to y'all's point, which I agree on, if, you know, this is why Shapiro used to go and try to debate undergrads, right? Because they want that. They, you know, like, that's like, you know, that's punching the random guy in the crowd. Like, uh, to, you know, that in, in a way, that's karate master going up against a bunch of young shits who think that they are karate masters and like yeah and ben shapiro who's a blue belt is just kicking all their asses if you know you're really prepared um and you bring your a game and your version uh your your presentation it's dude like to y'all's point about debate like yes it can be absolute gish gallop and that sort of thing but it also can be a really compelling presentation to persuade like an audience done correctly um you just have to at a certain point almost start not even like you're not talking at that person anymore you're working down the tunnel at the person and you're grabbing their audience i mean honestly i'd even do a little bit of handsy stuff if i was debating just to really make sure that i'm locking them in it's a negotiating tactic like with the flat earthers part one is you discredit them entirely and quickly and part two is you move on without them and present new ideas and you do hand gestures if man if we could wish these guys away um it would have worked by now i mean we tried to laugh them out of town in 2015. uh you know i, I mean it that that's that's my thing is it's like look i don't want to engage them i'm just thinking practically speaking we we ignore them i think at our own peril we act like they just go away but we we just don't see them
we we did ignore them at our own peril and look where we are now don't worry about the government a listener support podcast you can watch the whole show at patreon.com slash dwatg please 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 support the show this month because your boy is getting annihilated when it comes to power bills and and uh your donations right now i i am for real um they're helping because i i have uh i we talked a little bit about the hot water situation hot watergate continues um as i'm taping this episode we're now into like week six i have been getting i will have four really over-the-top power bills here including one that was like four hundred dollars um and my power bill has never been higher than 150 so supporting the show it is part of not exclusively uh, it is one of like the four things that i do for a living so i appreciate you supporting my work i really do patreon.com slash dwatg uh you can follow the show at dwatg we're on itunes stitcher and spotify so you know go and check stuff out over there dan where can people find you on twitter at dl carpenter robert uh what new improvements have you made around the house to limit contact I'm I'm starting to build a fence, but uh, lumber is in short supply. Razor wire is hard to come by. Uh, but luckily, I live in a red area, so you know there's guns all over the side. So yeah, yeah. I, I try scrap metal. Uh, like rusty scrap metal, I, I hear is uh, it's very foreboding. Um, and you get like a little bit of like a tetanus thing going on. Bringing those Fallout Four skills to bear on the situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, guys. Thank you both so much for doing this show. I want to thank you all so much for listening and supporting the show. And until the next one, bye-bye.